Welcome back, everybody, to the newest episode of Cake Bites, now part of the Little Fellow Media Podcast Network and sponsored by Buzzsprout. I'm incredibly excited to have the newest guest on the show for y'all today, um, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Incredibly excited to, um, to 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 go to South by Southwest and, and moderate a panel for you and your technical art team. Um, and I'm really excited to have you on to talk a little bit about yourself um, and and how you got to to being a technical art lead at Bioware. Um, but my favorite place to start is always at the very beginning for most people, which is when they started loving to play games. Um, and I'm curious when that was for you. Yeah, I think when I think back to kind of those fond memories of growing up playing video games, it's really, it really did start with my brother. I totally have to give him credit for that. Um, I do remember in December of 1993 when we finally, my mom finally caved and decided that it was okay for us to have a console at home. You know, prior to that, you would like spend the night at friends' houses and you would relish the opportunity to play, you know, the NES and things like that, but finally we had one of our own, and that you know that console system came with Super Mario World, which was <laughs> awesome because it's a two-player game. I mean, you know, obviously it's more fun to play with two players at least. And so my brother immediately sort of wrangled me in and was like, "Hey, you know, come and play." And the funny thing is, I think that just started this trend where I sort I sort of jumped onto the, all of these different games with him. We played so many um, <laughs> the Super NES, you know, portfolio of games. And I finally remember being second player in most of the, the the games that did have a second player, just being the second player. And <laughs> and so I have a very I, I tell people this pretty often. It's just I have a very strong fondness to the second players in, in games, especially <laughs> Luigi. <laughs> and and for me, I think just that time to really bond together, you know, to go down to like Blockbuster or whatever at the time, go grab a game um, and sit down on a Friday, play it all weekend. It was one of the things where you just like pause it on Friday night, turn off the TV, in the morning get up super early you know, scarf down your breakfast, turn the TV back on, and then just start playing through again. Um, and I think that that was a really big fond memory for me growing up, just to be able to have that time with my brother. And we still look back upon that really fondly as well. And, um, you know, I never really thought that it would be a career or that I got <laughs> into a career. Yeah. So I kind of went through that whole experience just thinking about how fun it was, but mm-hmm. never really thinking about the real-life impact it would have on me today. Does your brother credit himself for being the reason why you work in games now? <laughs> <laughs> takes that credit? Maybe to some degree, but he's very <laughs> humble about it, if so. I mean, he still continues to play a lot of games to this day as well, 
And, you know, he, he is also, though, a very big retro game fan, mm -hmm. so he has a Super NES Classic and all those things. And it's interesting because since that came out again recently, it's sort of rekindled those mm -hmm. memories. And so, you know, he's come and visited me before, and he's brought his, you know, brought his Super NES Classic, and we sit there and play just like we did in the old days. You know, just like <laughs> the old days, it's like not that long ago, but, you know, like Donkey Kong Country, you know, and all these things that we used to play and just reliving some of those things. It's always a lot of fun. Oh, that's that's amazing. You never planned for a career in games, like you said. How did you, so? Then how did you catapult it then, like into doing what you're doing now? Yeah. So the interesting thing was, I I was kind of like a lot of you know art, you know, the artistic kids kind of growing up, where you you know always have these ambitions of being a you know Disney animator. Mm -hmm. So you know when I was growing up, it was you know Aladdin, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. Um, one of my favorites of all time is The Little Mermaid. And seeing those growing up, you know, and, and how much of an impact that made, you know, it was like, I love art. You know, I, I'm totally into art. I want to I want to do that professionally. And so I always had this artistic inclination. But I guess as I went through middle school and high school, I sort of also began to realize that I had this interest in math and just learning and tinkering with things and trying to understand how they work. Um, and so for me, it was more about really kind of acknowledging that that was an interest area for me as well. So I liked the art and I liked the tech, but I didn't really know what I could do with that. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and when I got into high school, it was really interesting kind of series of events, but I had an art teacher in high school who had a son who was at a program at Texas A&M University. It was called Visualization Sciences. And he came to speak to us one day, my junior year in high school, and I remember him just talking about this amazing fusion between art and technology, mm -hmm. this program where he was not only studying you know, the fundamentals of animation, but also understanding and learning about how technology could help facilitate um, these creative projects. Mm -hmm. And at the time, a lot of the graduates from the program were specifically being scooped up by all of these massive you know, uh, 3D animation companies on the West Coast. Um, and so for me, it became sort of that light bulb moment where it was like, you know, that, that almost seems kind of like what I'm interested in, like what I would love to do. And through that series of events, it sort of became then a, then a deeper discussion in terms of, well, you know, when I graduated from high school, I, you know, I, I really spent a lot of time in art classes and building up an art portfolio. But now, if I do want to go into an area like this, I do need to build up the technical side a little bit more. Um, so I decided that I would go into computer science. <laughs> of course, you know, kind of the polar opposite of everything that I had been interested in, just from from the creative standpoint. But I understood, at least for, for a preparation standpoint, I didn't know what career I was going into. I just knew that that was going to be vital to my future mm -hmm. um, success in the industry. I just had, had a feeling. So, you know, I went through the computer science program, and it, you know, it was very technical, but at the same time, I did take art classes on the side. So, you know, I, I still did painting. I still did figure drawing. Um, I would drive back home to San Antonio during the holidays, and I would participate in open figure drawing sessions at some of the art schools and things like that. And so for me, that was the best way to kind of balance both of those things without feeling like one was being more neglected than the other. Um, and so it was really kind of that formulation of identifying that there were these two things that I was passionate about and really kind of pursuing that without mm -hmm. letting one or the other falter. 
Um, and as, as luck would have it, um, I did apply for that graduate program and I got in. Um, and that kind of became the springboard for the rest of my career. And originally I thought that maybe I was going to go into film, but um, obviously that, that changed quite a bit. <laughs> and with your master's program, um, and, and were you already um, working with any major studios like in any of that master's level work that you were doing? Were they, was the, was the university helping you uh, get in front of any of these major game developers or was that like a path that they pushed you down a little bit or did they give you a lot of options? Interesting. So when I was in the program, it was still very much feature film focused. And mm-hmm. so there wasn't a whole lot of game-related curriculum that we could gravitate towards to get exposure to that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, most of most of what I experienced was kind of more on the film production side, which was fine. There's still a lot of very creative problems to solve um, that are that mirror some of the things that we see in game development. And so it was still a really good experience in terms of honing those skills a little Mm -hmm. bit. and so I think that that, that experience uh, lent itself really well, but, but again, there was not really any game-related specific things that, that I could really grab onto and learn from. Um, the amazing thing is that now what we see in the visualization program, it, it not only has the master's program as it did when I was there, but there's also the undergraduate, and there is a track now for game development and design, and that's something that I go back to and support because you know I, I understand and acknowledge that that wasn't there when I was there, but it is a completely viable option given the skill sets that you learn through that program. Absolutely. And I, I actually had the opportunity to speak with Andre Thomas, who <clears throat> does a lot of work with the Live Live Lab, and he runs Triceum that, that develops games with the Live Lab. And those students get like amazing firsthand experience, like literally developing games that that their name will be on for the rest of their lives, you know. So, so I think it's really great that you are have continued to be involved with that program because it seems as if um, that program, along with um, I'm sure programs all across the nation, are, are are continuing to tweak and really take a look at the those those program offerings and seeing how they can expand it to be more than just film, but um, take advantage of the booming gaming industry. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, how did you? Uh, was was BioWare the first company that you actually got a, a job in the gaming industry with? Actually, well, not not quite. So when it was really interesting, you know, I had been talking a little bit about how the the master's program when I was in it at the time was very film focused. So you know, I had been looking for internships in that realm, and one day Electronic Arts showed up, and <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know. You know, I'm just looking for some industry experience. Any experience is good experience. And I ended up having a really good conversation with the people who had come on behalf of the company. And um, I think what really kind of piqued my interest was that they acknowledged some of the leadership things that I had done at Texas A&M. And, and, you know, that school in particular puts an emphasis on, you know, involvement in the community and in student organizations. And that was really something that piqued their interest in terms of like being able to work in a team and game de- game development teams are, are large, mm-hmm. you know, they can be large, especially at a company like EA. And so the ability to kind of, you know, the, I, I remember the folks there at the time, it was, um, I believe it was Leo Chan and Mary Beth Haggerty who I don't believe are at EA anymore. Um, but if they ever hear this, thank you so much for, <laughs> for, for, for finding and seeing that potential in me because 
You know, I think that that recognizing that being a part of a team, a cohesive team, and being able to function as part of one is is a very key skill, no matter what discipline you go into. And uh, in that internship, who who was that internship with that you ended up um, start going with first, right out right out of, gradu- oh, out right. of graduation? <laughs> well, thank you. So. Um, so long story short, after I had gone through that screening, I ended up landing an internship in Orlando, Florida at mm-hmm. EA Sports Oh wow! Um, at the Tiburon studio. And it was very interesting because I, w- I ended up working on Tiger Woods PGA Tour, which is a, it's a golf game. Um, and I, it, it hasn't been in production for a few years now, but it was my first exposure to uh, making video games entirely. Mm-hmm. And luckily enough, I had a very dear friend um, who was infatuated with this game. And once he learned that I was interning on this game, he brought out his console, he brought out <laughs> all his copies of the game, and we started playing together, and he started talking strategy with me, and I was like, this is awesome. And and it was almost like getting a taste of you know some of the games that I grew up you know, playing and enjoyed, but seeing that through somebody else, you know, mm-hmm. this is a sports game, very specific. This fan is obviously very passionate about it. And that kind of got me excited too. So I went on to, to this 12 week inter- internship in Orlando and it was a really eye opening experience. Yeah. I was on a team of five, five technical artists and we were working on all sorts of different tools in Maya, which is our 3d modeling application and um, Photoshop and you know all of these different creative tools that artists use to create content for games and helping provide a technical angle for those artists so that we could provide solutions that made it easier for them to create art in the game. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really fascinating because it wasn't until then that it all sort of clicked. It's like, okay, so I already have this computer science degree I already have this artistic knowledge that I've built up not only in high school and alongside my computer science degree, but now my master's program. And now it's all being applied at, at a professional level. And for me to, to go through the 12 weeks and really understand that process was totally eye-opening. I hadn't, like I said, never thought that I would be in the games industry. Never thought that that was a career option. And one of the things that actually, I still talk to this day when I go talk with students about things that I initially did um, when I was an intern, there was this problem that they needed solving where they, in the, in the golf courses of the game, they needed a quick way to uh, lay out fences. And fences, you know, when you think about fences in context of a golf course, you know, yeah, they add visual interest to the golf course in general. Um, but it's like one of those things that, that's like, if it's not there, then you kind of you miss it because mm-hmm. it's, you're, you're missing the ambiance of, a, of what a golf course is. And so I, one of my projects was to actually help automate the creation of, of a fence. And so the, the little tool that I wrote, and it's probably a little laughable now looking at it you know, <laughs> 10 and a half years later, but the little script that I wrote, you know, allowed the artist to specify which posts and which rail geometry they wanted to use. And then it would allow them to put in a, a number of different parameters and they could press a button and draw a line in, actually draw a line in, in the My application, select that, that line, press a button within the, the tool, and it would automatically generate a fence along that line. Versus so, having to individually pick out each yes. asset and place it. Right, yeah. And this was, 
you know, this is before we had like a whole lot of Houdini stuff that was prevalent and a lot of the tools that we use now for <laughs> but at the time to come up with the, the mathematical processes and the algorithm for actually being able to generate something like that was incredible. And you think about, you know, as you were mentioning, people placing these things by hand in a 3D environment. I mean, it was taking them up to a full day to do these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, to think about how the tool like totally optimized that time into, you know, it only then took maybe a couple minutes to put a fence together. Um, the amount of time saved takes a really perhaps mundane task for an artist to do, simplifies it, makes it easy. They can, they can obviously adjust it after that fence has been created, but then they have the artistic, you know, the artistic um, freedom and ability to work on things that they're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of really the essence of what a technical artist does for, for some of our artists. And the role itself was a role that really didn't exist. Um, like a really around the time that you were, you know, starting your career in the industry was around the time that technical art was a position, right? Um, but there's been an evolution of this role um, in, I mean, in the industry since I'm sure as technology has evolved forever. Um, can, right. can you talk a little bit about that and how you have even witnessed it evolve in the 10 years you've been in the industry? Yeah, for sure. So so technical art, when you look at kind of like, if you do internet searches and try to kind of wrangle when and where this kind of became solidified, it was kind of more in the early 2000s. And you'll see some talks, you know, from, from like Jeff Hanna uh, at GDC and a couple other, other people that started to help formulate the idea of what this discipline actually was. And it sort of came about um, because artists started realizing within the content that they were creating that there were some... N- needs to create um, art a little bit quicker in some ways or kind of cut cut corners so that they could again to the to the whole example for the fence tool be able to help automate or or assist in processes mm-hmm. um, with the help of, of technology help of scripts help help of you know these these different things that we can put in place to really enhance how the artists think about creating mm-hmm. their work um, and so it's sort of formulated from that, and, and as you've mentioned, it's become a little bit more concrete um, as the years have gone on. You know, I came in the industry not too far after that, and so even then at that point, there was still a little bit of, you know, we don't know what you guys do, but we know that you all do some amazing stuff on the team. <laughs> Almost like a unicorn. It's like you find the unicorn, you bring them in, and they do magical things for you. Um, but it's like, it's almost like that. It was like, do your magic, you know, do write a tool that does this or help us do that. Um, and so there was kind of a little bit of like, you know, you're a little bit, bit excited and kind of proud because it's like, wow, I have the skill set that's needed to be able to do this specific role. And it's a role that's really valued and, and the artists really appreciate. Um, and so I thought that that was really cool because then I felt at that point that it was like, it was really, really validating the effort that I had put in to balance those two skill sets um, into the into a formal discipline. Um, and it, you know, just to kind of step back a little bit, technical art in general is a it's a very broad field, so it covers a whole lot of different aspects of game creation um, under its huge umbrella. <laughs> and, and even the, so, the team that I that I have now at Bioware. Um, you know, there, there's not any one person that can do the same thing as anybody else on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, 
our skill sets are very, in some cases, very niche. Um, in some cases, they overlap a little bit, but I think collectively we're able to accomplish some really wonderful things for the team um, and provide some really great solutions. So for the for us, at least at BioWare, the way that we have it organized is by these sub-disciplines. So um, the, the, the first being, and not in any particular order, but the first being tools and workflows. So um, technical artists that typically come from maybe more computer science backgrounds tend to fall in this sort of role. But, you know, analyzing um, the possibilities for tools in, in our 3D applications, um, such as Maya, or applications like Photoshop helping, helping to um, automate different uh, texture processes that we might be running in there. Um, or things that are in the engine. Um, there are opportunities to help automate the way that we create and process content within the engine. So um, that whole realm of being able to create tools and scripts that help facilitate that side of, of artistic workflows is, is its own sub-discipline of, in of itself. The next area would be performance. And so that ties into um, looking at uh, the content assets that the artists have created and finding ways to make sure that they perform well in our game in context. So, you know, for example, when you look at a game like Anthem and you have all of these things collectively in your view, you've got you know trees, rocks, all of these different things. Collectively, if you have too many of those things or the, the meshes are just too dense, then you, have, you run into performance issues. So we go back and forth with the artists um, to figure out how can we achieve a great balance of it being able to perform well in the game so that we aren't choking up the game as people are running through the world, um, but also how do we make, make sure that these, these assets that are in the game look really good too? And so there's a tricky balance to that and there's a lot of different techniques that we put in place to analyze the content mm -hmm. that's in our game and, and work with the artists to achieve those ends. Um, and then the next area would be shaders. So shaders are basically um, a way for us to describe um, mathematically how something might behave in real life or in some cases how we think something might behave in the real life if it did exist. And so there are different, there are different ways to architect shaders. There are purely, you can write pure code. Um, some engines offer node-based ways to do it, but this, the, the end result is the same. You basically have to um, process a series of different textures and provide different mathematical operations that then define how, um, how something looks and feels in the game. Hmm. Basically looks in the game, really. Um, and so that whole process really is a skill set in itself as well. Um, and then finally, we do, have, um, we do have a separate role at Bioware that's called technical animator, but really under this umbrella of tech art, we also have animation. And within animation, we have um, people that write tools um, and workflows specifically for animators, but we also have people that focus on the content itself. So, you know, things like cloth or hair in the game um, and rigging, which is basically creating the skeleton for um, the models, the character models that we create and providing the articulation needed so that we then hand it off to our animators to, to fully animate. Um, and so, you know, as you can, as you can tell, there's quite a broad range of different skill sets. And, and for me, even as a, as a technical art director, overseeing all these different areas can be quite intimidating sometimes. Um, because there's just so much to learn and it's, you know, you, 
you really have to, you know, kind of choose your area wisely. There's just not enough time in the day to really learn all these areas to their fullest. So it's like picking a, a, a javelin class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like you, once you pick it, that's where you stand. At least to level uh, eight. <laughs> But we do have some people on our team who have secondary skill sets, and, and like I said, they do kind of overlap. So we don't have hard lines at each mm-hmm. of these things. But you know, it's like I said, there's a lot of skill and talent on the team, and we utilize each other, uh, each other's skill sets as best we can. Absolutely, and thank you so much. I know that that's there's so much to explain when you when you're asking you know, how the role has changed and really even just asking what is technical art, I feel like is, is like a thesis in itself, just be, mm-hmm. for, for the exact reasons you just described. Because, and, and I'm like pointing this out because we had this conversation with some of your teammates earlier, but, but somebody mentioned like you, you almost can't plan for going into technical art. Um, it just because it's such a, it's just a, such a nuanced skill set that, you know, if you fall into it, you fall into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that, tw- we, so you left us off at your 12-week internship with EA Sports. Um, so after that 12 weeks, did you stay with EA um, or did you, uh, I'm just curious kind of how you got to where you're at today as the lead technical art director? Yeah, so <laughs> interesting step of events there. So when I, was, when I was interning in the industry, there was still, there was this luxury of being able to offer you a job and yeah, you can go back to school, finish your last year and then come <laughs> back, which is totally unheard of now. <laughs> uh-huh. that, that doesn't happen anymore. But at the time it was, um, you know, I finished the internship. They really liked, the team really liked me. I love the team. They extended an offer, and I said, yeah, I, I want to finish my, my master's thesis. And they're like, sure, go do that. Go do <laughs> and so I was like, well, that's really awesome. Um, and so it was interesting, interestingly enough, so that, that was basically on hold for the following year until I defended my thesis. Um, but, but the funny thing was, so I, had, I actually had an offer for a feature film company right when I graduated as well. Oh, and wow. it was so interesting because it, I, I had that – same thought that I had before I had even gotten into all of this, which was, you know, thinking about growing up, making feature films, all that sort of thing. I had that in one hand, but then I had games in the other. And I ultimately made the choice to go back to EA, to go to Tiburon. Um, but most of that I found was just because we were on cutting edge technology. We were solving these really crazy creative problems. (laughs) The team was amazing. Mm -hmm. I knew what I was going back to. And all of that was extremely intriguing to me. Um, And so that was like, that that became kind of the the turning point in in my life, really, because I chose that as a profession. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ended up going back fully, you know, full, full time, back into the same team, you know, so it was... Back in Florida, yeah, back in Florida, um, and uh, I worked on worked on Tiger Woods PGA Tour for a few more releases for a couple <laughs> more years. Um, I was at Tiburon for about five and a half years total, and and during that time, I worked on um, not only the golf game there, but um, but for NBA Live and then for uh, Madden NFL as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got some really broad experience in the sports realm making those games. Um, and those those games have a shorter iteration cycle, so those games come out yearly. So really getting accustomed to game development pretty quickly because you go through the life cycle of the game, you know, within the span of a year. Um, so that was all incredible. Um, you know, in terms of the sports that I worked on, they were all very fascinating in their own ways. 
I still have um, the Masters app on my phone, and I still follow professional golfers. And I did not follow golf before I started that job, let me tell you. Because I always thought that it was one of those things where it was like, oh, Sunday afternoons, you want to go to sleep? You turn on golf on your TV, and you fall asleep on your couch. Um, but after that experience of working on that game, it's like, you know, you'd have players that would come visit the studio. Um, you know, get to interact with, with uh, just the you, – we would get tickets to go see – you know, the, the players mm-hmm. tournament or Bay Hill or things like that. And you would actually see the intimacy of that sport. You get to go up right close to those players. And there is, I have not experienced another sport that allows you to get that close to the athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think experiencing all of that gave me a greater appreciation for that sport than I, you know, didn't have before. Mm-hmm. With NBA Live, you know, I'm from San Antonio, our only pro pro team is this bird. So, you know, I think for me as a fan, it was really cool to have a team that I was, um, you know, invested in, in the game and to be able to look out for that team. Um, and I have a really, really funny story for that one. Um, when I was on NBA live, uh, we didn't get the chance to go and, and scan all 3d scan, all of our stadiums mm-hmm. for the first year. Um, cause we resurrected it, um, back for NBA live, uh, 14. And so, so since they didn't get to make it to the Spurs, uh, the AT&T Center uh, for the Spurs, um, I decided I decided that I would call up a friend and see if I could get some pictures of the arena itself. And so I had a friend at the time who was working um, with marketing for the Spurs and called up a couple of contacts that he had. And they immediately, I mean, this was within <laughs> an hour of having this conversation, he sent out some people to go to the AT&T Center they took pictures in all different directions um, with like high res pictures, and they basically put them on a share drive. And ga- I mean, it was like gigs and gigs of photos. Oh my gosh! The stadium. And so, <laughs> and so, I turn around. I give the I give these to the art director, and the art director is like, "How did you get this?" <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, San Antonio's first fan network fan." <laughs> And it was just like, he was just floored. He's like, I can't believe that this, you did a turnaround in this in 20, you know, 24 hours or, you know, 48 hours, however quick it was. But, you know, it really speaks to like the passion of the fans and mm-hmm. how much they really want to see their team represented in these games. I was very invested in that. And so NBA Live was a very fond experience for that reason. Yeah. I thought that that was really awesome. And the art director would also, when we got new, you know, the head models in for all the players, He'd, you know, show them, bring them up on his computer, and he'd say, hey, does this look like Tim Duncan? Does this look like Manu Ginobili? <laughs> yes, yes, clear. We're good to go. Um, so I thought that that was so fantastic. It was really great. Um, but each each game that I've worked on really has a whole lot of, um, you know, fond memories attached to it. Um, and, and when I left uh, Tiburon in, in, you know, after the five and a half years I moved over to BioWare, which is still, it's still within the EA family. It's a, it's a, another division, Electronic Arts. So, um, you know, it was just a different type of game. So, you know, adjusting to uh, longer development cycles, or in this case, you know, I moved, I moved directly to the Star Wars The Old Republic team, and that game had already been launched. And so it was, uh, it was already live service. We were pushing out um, expansions to that. And so I came in right around the time we were doing Strongholds. Um, and that was also very eye-opening because um, by that time, the team had really kind of hashed out the way that they were operating. And, you know, it was almost like clockwork. It's like, okay, we have an expansion. We have this amount of time to do it. We promised to advance by X amount of time. So let's make sure we plan accordingly and get it out. And it was just so, so 
interesting and fascinating because I had not worked in live service before, but to see how that worked behind the scenes mm-hmm. to make sure that we were constantly delivering content to the fans was a completely different, um, you know, it was a paradigm shift. Yeah. Right? Um, but that was super fascinating. And, you know, the, the nature of our tech artwork was very, it was very technical. I was almost like a programmer, I think, on that team. Um, but it was also very, very eye-opening just in terms of being in that environment and working on a live service game like that. Um, and then about three and a half years ago, I transitioned over to Anthem. And I was originally part of the technical animation team. So I was writing tools and workflows for animators. And it was a really great time because we actually came up with some of the infrastructure um, for some of the tools for the tools that we use today in Maya, um, and so that was really great to be a part of that um, you know formative process where we made some design decisions that are helping us now at a studio wide level. Um, and so I so I spent about a year and a half working on tools um, before I transitioned over to being technical art director. And you know as I've mentioned um, that. The technical art discipline is just so multifaceted and we have so many people um, that do so many different things. It's Sometimes it gets overwhelming, it's, you know, trying to, trying to get a handle on all these different disciplines, sub-disciplines that we have within our umbrella and making sure that all of our stakeholders and all the people that we work with on a day-to-day basis have what they need in each of these areas can get overwhelming sometimes. But I really enjoy the challenge of you know, being able to, to communicate with all of these people, uh, being able to facilitate and bring our team together, and um, and also be a motivator for our team. Um, and I think the, the most fascinating aspect too of all of this is that this is my first time working on a distributed team. So we've got, you know, we've got seven people on my team. Most of them are, are in Austin, but the other, the other few are in in Edmonton, Canada, so separated by, you know, a plane trip that is not direct. <laughs> you have to take multiple, <laughs> multiple flights to get there. But, you know, the fact that we, we still have to work to be cohesive and we still work together to create Anthem is fantastic. So each game that I've worked on um, has really, I've, I've learned something with each game that has really helped inform the next. Um, and I'm excited to see where things go, but I can't believe that it's already been ten and a half years in the industry. It's just like it passes so quickly. Um, but I, but I feel like I've had all of these different varied experiences that keep on building on each other and help inform how my career is going to go in the future. And something that really stuck out to me is, in addition to all of the work that you do with EA and a Bioware, um, the fact that you spend quite a bit of time doing advocacy work for like about women and minorities in the gaming industry and just you know as as an advocate for the industry in general at all manner of events you know we're going to be speaking at South by Southwest um but I don't know if you've spoken at GDC um or anything like that but but I just know that you've taken part in a lot of different panels um why is that something that's important to you? Because I know that that's probably not a part of your job yeah. <laughs> necessarily, but... Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I think that um, it's important to... I think... So let me step back a little bit. So as a, as a woman and a minority, you know, if I'm... There, there definitely aren't many of us in the industry right now. When we look at, at statistics just in general, you know, we have about 22% women in games, um, when we look even further, the delineations of minorities as well, 
other Latina women, which is the category I fall into, we probably make up less than 1%. So really thinking about what are some things that, you know, that I can do as somebody who fits that demographic that could potentially inspire future, you know, future young people that are coming up and coming to potentially consider a career maybe in, in, in tech or in games. Um, I think it's something important to, to uh, you know, to help, help drive as somebody who's been in the industry for a while and has had a lot of positive experience in it. Um, furthermore, I think one of the other statistics that really does um, motivate me as well is that we see very low retention in tech uh, for women in minorities. Um, so just a few basic statistics. Um, you know, people of color are leaving the tech industry at more than three and a half times the rate of white males. Women leave tech at more than two times the rate of white men. Um, and 32% of women are likely to quit within one year. So to me, that speaks volumes that, you know, there needs to be a support network in place. And if there's anything that I can do to help support that and advocate for, um, you know, the positive effects of having women in tech specifically, um, then I, you know, I'm going to do everything that I can to advocate for that. Um, you know, and, and furthermore, even when you look at statistics in terms of diverse teams, like diverse teams um, approach problem solving better, um, they increase profitability. There's so many, so much value to be had by making sure that our teams are diverse, not only women, minorities, but other areas as well, and just making sure that we're balanced in, in what we do. Um, you know, women, when you look at the, the demographic of women in the U.S., the number of women gamers, it's sitting almost at about 50-50 males to females. So it's interesting that we are seeing 50, almost the 50-50 um, in terms of game players, but we aren't seeing that reflected in the industry too. I think the women's perspective in creating games is also very valuable. Um, we provide uh, perspectives that may not otherwise be, um, be highlighted during the creation of a game. Um, so those are some things that I really value and I wanna make sure just through my involvement um, in various conferences um, that I help advocate for that and let people know that there is a path to this industry where you can be supported. Um, and one thing I'd like to also point out as well is that because there are a few, um, few women um, and minorities in, the, in our ranks right now, um, to not underestimate the value of mentoring. Um, I have had some phenomenal mentors in my life who are not minority, who are pretty, pretty much mostly male, um, but without their guidance and support, I, I don't know if I would have made it this far. Mm -hmm. And these people are people that you need to surround yourself with in, you know, regardless of what, whatever, you know, career field you go into, finding people that really support you, can advocate for you, can help provide guidance to help you navigate your career. I think that's really, really what it comes down to. And ultimately, you know, I just want to be that person for games. I want to be somebody that people can see as maybe an inspiration or maybe somebody that they can approach for advice. Um, because it is possible and I've had so many positive experiences in this industry that I I feel that there are, there are so many opportunities left for us to be even more a part of it than we are today.
Absolutely. And, and I was curious if you had any advice, um, aside from the offer to give advice if people are seeking it, um, but for, for people who want to work in games and, and maybe are unsure of how they can make that work with, you know, the decisions that they've made about school or not going to school at this point in their life or, or whatever, um, what would you say to them? There are a couple of things I think that are, are really important to highlight. Um, I would say, number one, to not underestimate the importance of networking. Um, that's how we met. <laughs> that's how we met, actually. Um, it, it, yeah, so case in point, it brings people together um, and brings you into situations that you may not have normally found yourself in otherwise. Um, one good case in point is that I have been involved with the SIGGRAPH conference, which is the, the Association of Computing Machinery's special interest group on computer graphics. <laughs> That's why it's shortened to, AC, to ACM SIGGRAPH. Um, but they have a conference every year. Um, and I was a student volunteer back when I was a sophomore in college. Um, and I did that volunteer experience not thinking that it was going to make uh, an impact on me, mm-hmm. um, but here we are, what, 2019 now, um, and I am still involved with that conference um, 17 years later. Um, all of the people that I quote-unquote grew up with in that program are now working in the industry in all facets, in games, in film, I mean, even even <laughs> other other creative industries aside from that as well, and I think to now be in the industry myself and have this network of people that I've grown up with, I mean, you can't you can't put a price on that at all. I mean, mm-hmm. it's incredible that I can call up a friend from you know who's working at Blue Sky, or a friend at, at Pixar, or a friend at another game game company, and be able to um, you know just have have conversations with them because I've been friends with them for a long time, um, and just talk with them about things that matter to the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's invaluable. It's invaluable to have those networks. And so I really encourage you know, uh, students and, and, and people to, to just not underestimate the power of networking because it can bring you into some really great situations that you, you might not, not otherwise find yourself in. Um, and, and so find ways to volunteer. Get involved in your community. Find special interest groups. Go to meetups. Um, just, just find what you're passionate about and really gravitate towards the mechanisms that can introduce you to other people that are just as passionate okay. about it as you are. Um, so that one I think is a really big one for me. Um, also, I, I think there, so in, in a lot of the conferences that I've gone to, um, there's, there's this often this talk about this idea of imposter syndrome. And you know, imposter syndrome is this whole idea of, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not worthy enough to be here. I'm not cut out to, to, to do this or to do that. Um, it's sort of this, you know, bias that we put on ourselves that we are incapable of doing things even though we are fully equipped to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think one of the things that, that needs to be called out here is that we need to stop doing that to ourselves. We limit ourselves when we think about, um, you know, what we, what we don't have or we don't feel that we have to contribute to a particular position, a professional pos- position we need to be able to push through that feeling of being scared or push through that feeling of being intimidated. Um, and when you think about it in a games context, it's you know the places that are the hardest to get have the best rewards. It's mm-hmm. totally that. It's totally that. Um, 
and I talk about this many times in some of the some of the talks that I've done at, at the Grace Hopper conference at the Tapia conference I've talked about this idea of um, that was presented by Ginny Rometty who is the the CEO of IBM who who once said that um, growth and comfort never coexist which is something that I think about daily daily if I'm not not pushing myself if I don't feel like I'm growing then there's something wrong I need Mm -hmm. to reassess where I'm at am I am I doing what I'm passionate about is there something that I can do better here um really try to think about how can I push myself further are there things that I can do you know can I pick up a game engine can I start going through tutorials can I start you know creating a game with some friends of mine what are there what are ways that I can get exposed to um potential job roles in this industry with what what tools that I have now available to me and trying to be resourceful about that and trying to continue pushing yourself and thinking about how can I make myself uncomfortable just a little bit (laughs) so that I can push myself that much further um and so those are kind of some of the two of the biggest areas that I think like you can really make some great leaps and bounds in terms of developing your own career and making determinations on what your own career path is Absolutely. And I like those answers because they're not necessarily like your cookie cutter answers. I think that some with imposter syndrome, especially, it's really easy to feel like you're not worthy mm-hmm. of, of, of being in a position that, that maybe isn't available to you yet. But, mm-hmm. you know, nobody should feel like they shouldn't try just yeah. because of the assumptions that they're making about everybody else around them or the people that are in charge. Right. Um, and I think just one other thing to add on that is to, I, I do want to re-highlight the, the importance of mentors. If there's mm-hmm. somebody that you look up to, um, even if it's an aspect of their personality and maybe not their technical skill set, um, reach out to those people, have some conversations with them, come to them with an agenda of things that you'd like to get done. Most people are pretty flattered when they're asked to be a mentor. <laughs> so, you know, don't feel, don't feel scared, you know, to approach somebody and ask them if they're willing to give you some of their time just to chat, even if it's just one or two times. Um, the worst they can say is no, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, it really, really taking the initiative to, to drive your own career. Um, that's ultimately what it, what it comes down to. Nobody will dictate your career for you. Your career is in your own hands and you are in control of it fully. Mm-hmm. Um, so really take the reins on it as early as you can and incorporate some of these things so that you have full control of your career and you feel like you can direct it in a way that um, will help you make the most meaningful impact on the world that you feel you can. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, those are all of my questions. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add before while, while I've got you here? <laughs> I think just in closing, I think this discipline technical art has just opened my eyes to so many different things. I've been, I've worked with so many incredible people throughout the years and have been supported um, by so many. Yeah. And I feel like it's, it was the best career choice I ever made. Um, and I say that kind of emotionally because I think about, you know, all of these different fun experiences that I've had creating all these different games that I've created. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people behind them are ultimately what keeps me in this industry it it really has made a larger impact than I ever thought it ever would. And I'm happy to be in this industry, and I look forward to being in this industry for many years to come. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Gracie. I'm, I'm very excited to have the opportunity to be moderating um, the panel, highlighting the technical artwork in Anthem. Um, I'm excited that you're going to be um, available for mentoring sessions at South by Southwest this weekend if people are attending. Um, and I will have links to your social media where people can reach out to you and contact you if they so wish. Um, but, but thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me. I know um, it's been a crazy couple of months with Anthem um, <laughs> launching and, and, and now all the work that you guys are doing um, afterwards. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to check out the other shows that are part of the Little Fellow Media Podcast Network. That includes Opinioneering, The Well-Read Mage, Dating Kinda Sucks, Tasty, and others. Make sure you subscribe and review the show on whatever podcatcher it is that you prefer listening on. And don't forget to follow Cake Bites on whatever social media it is that you prefer to listen on. And I've got a subreddit set up now um, to share links, links to the show, whatever I feel like adding in and, and whatever you guys feel like would be great and contribute to discussion about the show and video game history. So I hope to connect with you guys there. All right. I think that's everything. See y'all next time. Do you believe in magic? Yes, yes, that's all the singing I'll be doing for the rest of this commercial. I am the Well-Read Mage, a metaphorical magician with a fancy hat. I host a podcast called MageCast, an audio extension of thewellreadmage.com, home to over three dozen games writers from around the world. MageCast focuses each episode on a single game and aims to bring out the deepest, most analytical discussion possible without sounding pretentious. At times combative, at times thoughtful, at times hilarious, I dare you to find a more magical podcast led by a Red Mage. Hey, we're few and far between these days. And now, if you'll excuse me, I can hear the crystals calling. Don't forget, you can find MageCast on Buzzsprout as part of the Little Fella Media Network.